Good morning, everyone. The scripture portion has been taken from John chapter 4, verses 1 to 18. I repeat, John chapter 4, verses 1 to 18. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more people than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judah and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for the, a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it, and as uh, did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to, come, I have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just is quite true. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning once again. Please keep your Bibles open to the portion that has been read, and we shall try to walk through it um, slowly, passage, and verse by verse. As Johnson has mentioned, that we are walking away through the ministry of Jesus, focusing primarily on healing and teaching aspects of it. And um, this morning, we are going to see uh, an aspect of healing. We will also continue with this uh, portion of, I mean, the theme of the ministry of Jesus in the coming two months also, but primarily focusing on the parables and the miracle, miracles. So I would appreciate if you can pray for them. And those of you who have already missed the previous uh, Sunday sermons, please log into your website uh, and you can listen to them uh, at your convenient time. Let me pray before I proceed. Dear Lord, we want to come to you this morning once again, and as we open to the passage that has been read to us, we pray that you will enable us to understand this. Give us the mind of God that we may be able to see you in the light of the scripture that has been read to us. I also pray that you will anoint me, that you'll use me 
to speak your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What are some of your greatest needs at this stage of life? Or what is one thing that you need the most in life? Of course, uh, in, the, in the world that we live in, for most people, the answer to those questions can be in the form of financial security, maybe chasing fame, success, comfort, or freedom from pain. And we spend our life seeking after those things, even though we know very well that many of these things can be actually temporal fixations. Sometimes, even these things can become a distraction or in fact disappointments because we chase after them. And if we understand ourselves closely, we will all see that we have an innate desire in each of us, a thirst that we want to satisfy our heart's desires. You see, it is more than mere quenching of a water that we drink daily but it is something deeper. And today we shall explore this, what is this deeper desire that we thirst after? I know that, you know, when you heard about the sermon topic, healing a broken heart, you must have thought, oh, today's, today's sermon topic sounds like a pop song, a title of a pop song, you know? Because the image of a broken heart seems to fit more of the outside world, outside of the church circles. After all, we're all healthy, wealthy, and you know, we are doing well, sort of a thing. But if the truth be told, we know that we have all been through this. Not necessarily because we've had a boy-girl relationship that crushed, but because the promises in our lives have not been fulfilled. Or perhaps some of the deepest desires have not been met by people, circumstances, and we fell let down. Perhaps even today, as we come here today, many of us are nursing some kind of a hurt because of disappointments, because of dejections. And how do we understand this? And at such a time as this, what we need more is the healing of the heart. Because until there is healing, we cannot move forward. Whatever the circumstances may be, whether it's hurt by other people or it's because of something that you've been craving for and you have not heard or been able to attain, perhaps we need to look at these things. Often when we talk about healing, we often think of an external thing like a lame person being healed and he's walking now or a blind person can see. But today's focus, as we see, is the healing that would come from inside, the healing of a broken heart. In other words, this passage will also clearly tell us that what is inside of us that is something that needs a greater healing, perhaps even on a constant basis, much more than any other physical problems. And the writer of this gospel, John, makes it even more clear. If you notice that this Two chapters, chapters two and three, uh, sorry, three and four of this Bible, picks up narrative or stories of two individuals. In the first, uh, the third chapter, we have read about Nicodemus, Jesus encountering, or Nicodemus coming to meet Jesus at uh, evening time on the night. 
And in chapter 4, we read about this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Now, why is John doing this? He gives a very clear clue. If we look back at the last two verses of chapter 2. Now, if you can just flip back two chapters and read the last two verses of chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 24, 25. This is what we see. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about men, for he knew what was in a man. Now the stress here is he knew all people, to verse 24. And then again in verse 25 he says, he knew what was in each person. John simply goes on to elaborate these two verses in two chapters, giving us, giving us two sharply contrasting characters. If you look at these two characters, who was Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a highly respected person in the society of the Jewish people. He was a Pharisee. And you can't find a person who is morally upright than a Pharisee in terms of how they actually uphold, not because, perhaps not because of what is inside. But he also came to Jesus and found out that he was actually empty from inside. But here in chapter 4, we read about a woman who is despised, unnamed, and actually somebody whom the Jewish people despised, a Samaritan woman. And yet despite this contrast that we have, both of them have a heart problem. They did not really see what was inside of them. And as Jesus continued to reveal and prop their hearts, they actually showed themselves what was the shortfall of them. So as we look at this, to, this, this narrative on the narrative of uh, uh, John, uh, Jesus speaking with the Samaritan woman, we will see that just as Jesus propped into the heart of Nicodemus, he continued to prop into the heart of this woman. But I also want you to invite us, each of us, to see that Jesus is also inviting us to prop our own hearts today. It is this perspective that I want to invite you to look at the passage before us today. Perhaps this conversation can also be a conversation between you and Jesus. And I've just, for the sake of um, uh, uh, the outline, I've uh, broken this passage from verses 1 to 18 uh, as uh, the first passage is from reaching the broken heart, which is the first six verses, and 7 to 18 as restoring the broken heart. Even though, of course, uh, the story of the good Samaritan, uh, sorry, the Samaritan woman flows on till verse 20, 42, we have just read up to 40, uh, 18, but we will try to cover as much as possible in the story. Now let's look at the first section, verses 1 to 6, reaching the broken heart. Now, verses 1 to 3 gives us a context of where and what was happening here. Look at what we see. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining baptism more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the, when the Lord learned this, he left Judea and went one, back once more to Galilee. Now, these verses are not to say that the Pharisees were happy with the ministry of Jesus. Oh, sorry, John. In fact, they were very much against the ministry of John. And in doing so, they actually ended up arresting John and placing him in a prison, ultimately leading him to being killed by Herod. But for the Pharisees, what was more alarming was the ministry of Jesus. You see, more than the ministry of John, the ministry of Jesus was 
of a larger size and a problem for them. And that is what the passage is telling us. But Jesus, because he knew that his time has not come to confront the Pharisees, decided to just, okay, not displease them at this point in time, and decided to go back to his base in Galilee. He didn't want an untimely confrontation. Of course, he will go on to confront the Pharisees face to face later, as we read into the ministry of Jesus. So he goes back, he is on the way back to uh, the Galilee. Now, what we see in verses 4 to 6, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob has given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Now, note the language of how John is telling us. He had to go through Samaria. Now, this language is actually an indication that this is a purposeful journey. Now, if you read a little bit about the history of the first century, it is said that you know, many of the pious Jews, religious Jews, would at best try to avoid going through the Samarian region, even though that's the shortest way from Judea to Galilee. They would rather go on a detour route, you know, they say that from Judea to Galilee, it's about two and a half days job, uh, walk on foot. Those days, people walk on foot, not fly or travel on their cars. But they would rather go on a longer route, more difficult route across the Jordan, cross over to Peria and come back on north because they don't want to pass through Samaria. That's the kind of hatred they have for Samaritans. And it is like, you know, you want to go to Sipi from here. But you hate all these politicians and bureaucrats, so they don't want to cross the green zone in Delhi. So you'd rather take the ring road, go up to North Delhi and cut through from Chandni Chowk and Darya Guns and pass, pass, pass through. So that would take double the time, right? That's how prejudice is. But the, the enmity between the Jewish people and the Samaritans goes back about 700 years in history. When the Northern Kingdom called Israel at that time, the Southern Kingdom was called Judea, uh, so Judah. The Northern Kingdom was exiled by the Assyrian Kingdom. And most of the people, the well-educated, more you know, wealthy, the higher classes of the Jewish society were exiled to many different countries of that time. And what was left was a small population. And so this Assyrian Kingdom brought in lots of foreigners who came to settle this sparse uh, populated land. And therefore, in course of time, there was intermarriage. And so within that specific time, over a point of 500, 600 years, a breed of people called the Samaritan emerged. Now the Jewish people, of course, the law tell them that you should not intermarry with other people. Therefore, they hated these people. Because after all, these are the brood of people who are considered mixed breed. But the Samaritans were also quite smart. They believe in the first five books of the Bible. They don't want to read about the other history. And they also build a temple, which is a parallel temple as contrasted to the Jerusalem temple at Mount Gerizim. Now, Mount Gerizim is also a very uh, important historical landmark. But the Jewish people destroyed the temple about 150 years before this incident happened. And the Samaritans also retaliated by desecrating the Jerusalem temple by placing human bones. So you see that, you know, these two communities, even though they were close neighbors, are very much enemies. But what is noteworthy is also how John gives 
the specifics of other incident. Sychar, the place is near Sakem, a very historical place again. But he also gives us this place as the place where Jacob had a well. Now, this is a very important part because they also trace their ancestry to Jacob. And when Joseph's bone was brought from Egypt, it was buried here. So this is a very important place for the Samaritans. In, in, in fact, it for all Jews too. But the Samaritans are now part of this, uh, inhabiting this part of the thing. Now that's an important part. Secondly, it also marks the time of the day. And in, in today's time, it would be the noon part of the day. And so for people living in that region, uh, most people would come to fetch water in the morning and the evening because water is required more during this period, as all of us do. But this woman, as you see here, come at a very odd time, and she came alone. This was a noon time. And that's very important because John is helping us identify the place and also the time. Why is this woman doing? Obviously, for one reason, she was trying to avoid the gaze of the public. She was obviously trying to avoid people. Otherwise, why would she have come here? Because as we read into the narrative, we also read that she was living a life which was not endorsed by the society. But this we will slowly move into. But this woman was, in one way, if you look at it, um, ill-reputed person. But what is astounding about this encounter is that she would come at a very odd time when people would actually rather sit inside because of the hot uh, uh, time of the day. But it is opportune time of that day. She would meet the person who would change her life upside down. She would change, sorry, he would change her life forever. So if you look at these first six verses, what we see is that the narrator also points to the fact that Jesus was also tired. Look at what we see. Verse 6, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. Now, this is one of those clear passages in the Bible which speaks about Jesus' humanity. You know, he was also tired and exhausted like any of us. He was a human being, even though he was fully God. Sometimes we tend to miss this point when we read the scripture. But despite his physical exhaustion, he still ministers to this woman who needs restoration and also transformation. So what is something that we can actually learn from these first six verses is that Jesus comes seeking after the lost and the needy. Now, if there's one person who is truly broken in the heart, in the passage that we read, it has to be this woman who was looking for love and acceptance. But all this while, she's been looking for that in wrong places and wrong people. So we see here that Jesus comes seeking after the broken heart. And he's truly the shepherd who comes after the sheep that has gone wayward. And Jesus did all this intentionally. He reaches out. He had to go through Samaria so that she can, he can minister to this woman. Let's look at this next uh, passage from 17, 7 to 18. And I think this is where the main content of the passage is. Now, 7 to 9 read it this way. When a Samaritan woman came to, the draw, to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? 
His disciples had gone to the town to buy water. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? But Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. I've already told you this. But what is interesting about the start of this conversation is that the question by Jesus, will you give me a drink, is answered by a question. How can you ask me, a Samaritan woman, of water? You see, clearly, while telling these bits and parts of these things, especially in the brackets, if you see, if you're following the same Bible as I'm using it, you'll find that John is actually inserting some of the things that we need to also understand, the animosity between the two uh, communities. But, see, if you look at it, you know, this kind of thing always is operational everywhere. We can consider casteism in our own country, right? Communities don't associate with each other. In fact, you know, it is said that the Jews do not drink or eat from the dishes used by the Samaritans. It's defiled. Hmm? So that's why she's asking, even if I were to draw water for you, will you drink it? Because it is my pot, it is my jar. Because you Jews don't drink from what Samaritans have already touched. Untouchability is what is being practiced here. And of course, we can also read into many other layers that are part of these things. But the counter question is also a reaction of shock. You see, because during the times of Jesus, and you know, especially the strict rabbinical laws forbid rabbis talking to a woman in public, even though the woman is his wife or a daughter. That's a strict form of rabbinical teaching. And Jesus was referred to as a rabbi, a teacher. And you know, interestingly, there is also a category of these more strict Pharisees who would rather walk in public head bent, lest they incidentally look at a woman by mistake. And unfortunately, they would bump into pillars or walls. And that's why they are called bruised and bleeding Pharisees. They have a category. And they would take that as a pride. They are bruised because we are pious. Look at the kind of hypocrisy that people are living through. They would rather not look at a woman bump into a wall. I wonder if any of us would do that today. So that's why if you look at it, the Samaritan was shocked. He said, how can you ask the woman? And I too am a Samaritan, not even a Jew. Right? But this is where the heart of Jesus is. This is where we see the heart of Jesus. He intentionally spoke to her. He broke the barriers, knowing fully well that this is not what it is meant to be for a rabbi. Right? He broke this barrier, cultural barrier, religious barriers. And he wanted to do and minister to this woman. Now, how often do we do this? How often do we try to reach out to the other people, break cultural barriers? Often, many of us would end up talking to a convenient person from the same linguistic group, cultural groups, even in church. Perhaps that's a message for all of us, that we need not be cut out, cut down, or perhaps walled by this kind of artificial barriers we have. Of course. This is not to say that, you know, you just go and randomly talk to any person on the street using Christian jargons. Of course, in the times that we live in, we are to be also 
careful because our intention can also be judged. Like it is already happening in the Western world. Your intention can be brought into justice. I'm sure you must have heard of all these news that are there in the thing. We need to also use time-appropriate language and way of conversing. And especially when it comes to the opposite gender. But if you notice that the progression of this conversation eventually led to a point of self-realization for the woman. Jesus was not at all intrusive in his approach. Rather, he props his way or through those questions that the woman actually lead the conversation. And in leading the conversation, she also reveals her own shortfall. That's exactly what you also see in Nicodemus' story. He only asks questions, and Nicodemus only tells what is short in him. At the same time, you also notice that Jesus um, often uses a physical analogy to talk about the greater spiritual needs or a message to people whom he encounters. Now, in this instance, you, he, he was talking about the water that he actually wanted to drink, that is a physical need. But he moves on to actually tells in verse 9 onwards, 10 onwards, he talks about the living water. So you see that, you know, there is a parallel, that there is a thirst for a physical need of that water that is drawn from the well. But there is also the need for the person to seek after the living water that only Jesus or God can give. And this is something which we see, right? Jesus uses this kind of analogies. While talking about feeding the 5,000, he talks about the bread of life. And, and that's something, I guess, which, you know, we, we have not quite learned, even as preachers, using a physical analogy to talk about the greater spiritual aspect. I'm sure you find that um, this woman was unable to understand Jesus initially. And as we see from the narrative, because she was saying, how can you give me water? Because you don't have nothing to drink, to draw the water from. How is it that possible? How is that going to be possible? But if you see that as the narrative progresses on, she was able to recognize that this woman was not just an odd Jew, an odd Jew asking water from a Samaritan. But later on in verse 19, she said, well, I recognize that you are a prophet. Yeah, in verse 19. And later on, she eventually recognized her as the Messiah. Verse 25, 26, 29, and 39. Now, I would like to believe that this conversation with the woman was much longer. Check, check. I would like to believe that this conversation with the woman was much, much longer than what John has recorded. Because... Um, she later on went and told the town folks that this person told me everything that I ever did. Look at verse 29. Verse 29. And also the same thing again in verse 39. He said, this man told me everything I ever did. Now if you look at this, this kind of statement, it means that the conversation was more stronger. And I would also like to believe that the woman eventually drew water and satisfied Jesus by giving him physical water as a talk. So the conversation would have been much longer. And further down, as we see in verse 39, that many Samaritans believed in the town of Samaria because of the woman's testimony. 
Now, I would say that this is an extraordinary transformation, an extraordinary transformation from the woman who was trying to avoid the people, the public. She ended up declaring to the whole town the message about the Messiah that she has found. So this is no mere, ex no, no mere encounter. This is actually something that has brought about a kind of a transformation. Look at her. She was an outcast. She was a despised woman. And perhaps she was totally broken from inside. But she met the person who would restore her completely. Now what I, what I want to say, and this is, I think, a very important principle for us to keep in mind, is that Jesus knows our deepest problems and can fully restore us. Jesus knows our deepest problems and can fully restore us. As far as this woman is concerned, we can certainly be say that, you know, she was living or, or, or looking for meaningful existence in wrong places and wrong people. One marriage after another, she thought that would be it. She's been living with, she's been married for the four five times. But at the end, when she was encountering Jesus, she was not actually legally married. She was just living with another person. Now, if you look at this thing, you see that, you know, she thought one marriage would end her problems. But she went on marrying another person, the other person. Finally, she even gave up the idea of marriage. She was just living with another person without the obligations of marriage. Now, you must admit that this person, this woman is actually living a lifestyle much beyond her time. 2,000 years later, we see many people choosing to live that kind of a lifestyle. They don't want to be compelled to be responsibly married to another person. They don't want a commitment of marriage. And they would rather live outside of marriage because that doesn't bring any kind of pressure on them or they are not bound by certain principles. And that's why perhaps we see many marriages breaking apart they do not find meaning in marriages the idea of marriage is not something that actually entertains people or rather they would sign what you call prenuptial agreements well if something happens well this is where it is we break away and get on these things so you see we live in a broken society with broken people just like the woman and in a sense that our society our individuals that live in a society continue to need this kind of a healing so what do we learn from this passage? You know, I want to end this by pointing out a few points, some of which, of course, I've already stated as I was progressing through. But I want to summarize it for all of us to take it easily. I have titled it as the three only Jesus statements. The three only Jesus statements. The first statement is that only Jesus can truly heal the broken heart. That's my first only Jesus statement. Only Jesus can truly heal the broken statement. Well, many of us must have read this passage and thought, well, you know, this is a one of a kind story and we have nothing much to learn. After all, we are not like her. But if you read it closer, you'll realize that she is very much like all of us. She has a broken past because she has sought safety and security in wrong places and wrong people. So after marriages after marriages, she is still left empty. 
And perhaps even she was abused in all these marriages. We, we do not know, but there are certain things possible. Why doesn't the marriage work? It is perhaps because there is abuse, there is violence, which we do not see. And she is not able to see. Forget about her physical needs. She is not satisfied spiritually. The search for her to be satisfied moves on. More, not just at a personal level, at a physical level, but also moves on to a quest of a spiritual need, a deeper longing that she is willing and wishing to be fulfilled as we go on. So where do you look for fulfillment today, my dear church members? Perhaps you're chasing after success, you're chasing after money, freedom from pain, and whatnot. And many of us can find that all those things can be as elusive as ever. I do not suggest that those things are necessarily negative. In fact, all of us need them. We need them. We are after it to a point. But we also understand that many of these things are actually temporal fixations. It do not quench the thirst forever. Even this Samaritan woman looked for fulfillment in marriages. But sadly, it was not to be found. I'm sure she went one marriage from the other, thinking that perhaps the next one would bring a sense of fulfillment. But unfortunately, it became a kind of a vicious cycle. If you happen to find semblance in this woman today as we read through, perhaps this is an invitation for all of us to, to come in a conversation with Jesus. However twisted your past may be, Jesus is willing to engage with you. And as Jesus continues to intervene in our life, we exercise that rediscovery of life's meaning. Consider this woman. Do you think this woman stopped coming to the well after this encounter? Of course not. She would have come. But what would change is that she won't mind mingling with other women, coming in morning and the evening, or perhaps even in due time, noon time, not trying to avoid people, but she is confident enough because she has been healed of this. What about us today? Do we also bear a sense of brokenness in all of us? Maybe relationally we are broken. Maybe circumstances have led this to a point of hurt, pain. Maybe people have hurt us. Maybe our quest for a success, career, reputation to satisfy our needs is the problem which is dragging you down, making you feel a broken people. Only Jesus can heal. Second point, only Jesus is our greatest need. Only Jesus is our greatest need. Now, I started out by asking you the question, what is your greatest need at this point of time? Or where do you need, or where do you look for fulfillment in life? And for those of us, many of us are parents. Many of us with children, where do you drive your children to find fulfillment in life? I remember joining a parenting class many years back in this church. And one of the questions that was thrown at us was, what is your child's greatest need? And all of us were saying, well, you know, a stable life, good job, uh, you know, educational success, and meaningful life, all those sort of things. Compatible life partners, etc. Of course, those are not bad. They have to be part and parcel of it. But understandably, in India, the pressure on parents is extraordinary because 
you know, education sometimes become a god that we ended up worshiping. We don't mind letting our children miss Sunday school or, you know, uh, church services, but they don't miss, they can't miss tuition or coaching. And that's the kind of reality that we even as children, parents, Christian parents face even in our daily life. We don't mind going to job on Sundays, but, you know, we don't mind missing Sunday services. Job is job. That's where my bread and butter comes from. That's the explanation we get. Where do we look for life's fulfillment? Where do we see our children? You know, the problem is that, you know, if we started out giving them excuses for missing Sundays or Sunday schools, what do you think our children will learn from? They actually see what are the compromises to make. And I think that's something which I'm constantly reminded of, even as a children with, I mean, parent with young children, with kids, that my children's greatest need is Jesus, not a successful life. My children's greatest need is Jesus. And the problem, I think, with all of us is that it is the deceitfulness of the heart. All of us understand this. The heart is deceitful. And a reminder of today's passage from Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 and 10, told us very clearly. Verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? It's very difficult. Sometimes it is difficult to understand even your friend, your spouse, your best friend at office. And I'm so glad that, you know, even at this point of time, this sermon somehow did not plan it this way, but somehow fell in the right place because the children are actually going through VBS. They've been learning about the Good Shepherd because the she Good Shepherd guides, protects, and sustains. And they've been taught that the good life is when they follow God. You see, if you look at this, the same writer, John, the one who wrote this gospel, also wrote the two epistles, the three epistles. In the first epistle, in chapter 2, verse 17, 1 John 2, 16, he talks about the three attitudes of heart that we need to be wary of. And the first, he says, is the cravings of the craving of sinful man. That's the first heart attitude that we need to be careful of. What do we mean by cravings of a sinful man? It's the desires of the flesh. It's the desires of sinful person. The secondly, he says, the lust of the eyes. This means going after material success, things, trying to hoard our houses, our lives with material things. And the third, he says, is boasting after what he has and does. And I'm just quoting those phrases. This is obsession of one's own life, success. What I have done, trying to flex our muscles to show what we have done. If you look at this in the world around us, many people are after this. Cravings of the sinful man, lust of the eyes, and boasting of what he has and does, right? Perhaps this would also give us an opportunity to check our heart today. For those of us who have been regular to church, like all of us are, can we honestly say that Jesus has truly satisfied us? Or is there any part of you that needs a check that this passage is telling us today? Finally, 
The third, only Jesus statement. Only Jesus can assure us of a restored life. Only Jesus can assure us of a restored life. Now, if you, if you look at the Bibles, particularly the ministry of Jesus, if you scan through the ministries of Jesus in the New Testament, especially the first four books, the Gospels, some of the greatest beneficiaries of his ministries were the women. And also they come across as the most grateful people. Scan through it. If you haven't done it, please do that. And this is no coincidence, I must say. In God's own wisdom, he made the gospel writers project this point very clearly. Take, for example, the, the appearance of women, the first appearance of Jesus after resurrection was to the women. Why did, he, why did Jesus choose to reveal himself to the women? And if you look at it extraordinarily, these women were the ones who first took the great news of his resurrection to the world outside. I was thinking, what would have been if it weren't for these women, if they refused to go and tell the news of resurrection? Our faith might as well be at stake. And if you look through the New Testament passages, the early church had lots of strong women who are very strongly involved in the ministry of Jesus. And I'm sure as we read through this today, even in this passage, you are carefully able to observe that this woman became a great missionary to her own people. Look at this woman who was trying to hide away from the life of people and ultimately went on, declared to the world, testified about the Messiah that he read. Likewise, we see many other kind of uh, you know, passages in the Bible. Let me just draw your attention to Luke chapter 8 and verses 1 to 3. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, and I'll read this. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town to village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with them, and also some women who had been cured of evil, evil, evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager at Herod's household, Susanna, and the many others, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. What a beautiful story that we are reading to. This is what a transformed life looks like. This is what a restored life, the restored life looks like. Just as women were recorded, both by Luke, Jude, John, and other people, we see that this restored life is a life that is gratefully lived. A restored life is marked by gratefully living for God. That's an important statement I would like to leave you with. A restored life is a life which is marked by living gratefully for God. Now, if I ask you, are you grateful to God for saving you from sins and restoring you? All of you will say, yes and amen. But if I were to show, ask you, if does it show in your life? Well, this might take a little bit of an effort, isn't it? We have to assess our life, whether we've been really living a grateful life. Most of us may have been living a grumpy life, in fact, complaining about life situations. This Samaritan woman saw that this transformation was real by stepping out to tell about the truth of Jesus. Her life became a testimony. And that's what we see, that she actually became the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And secondly, as we see from these women, as we read in Luke chapter 8, 
we continue to see that they supported the ministry of Jesus out of their means. They're actually supporting Jesus financially. How are you serving in God's ministry today? Not everybody needs to come up here on the pulpit to minister. Many of you support financially resource and also by being available to do God's work. And I'm thankful that our church is very active in that aspect. There are various aspects of God's ministry that we can all be a part of. There should not be a room for us to say that I'm too small to serve or I'm just, you know, too little. I don't have any gift or all those kind of things. Because if you belong to this and have partaken in the living water that Jesus offered us, then we cannot say that we do not have the gift of God. You and I have partaken in the living water that Jesus has given us, the eternal life. And therefore, as verse 10 clearly tells us that if we have known Jesus as God and have partaken in the living water, we know the gift of God. Because Jesus gave us. And that's what we are all called to. My encouragement today, this morning, is that let us take this step as of living a restored life, living a grateful life, and serving God with all our hearts. Would you like to bow with me and take a pause to reflect upon this passage? And as we reflect upon this, I do not know. Only God sees you because God knew what is inside of you. Is there any brokenness that you're nursing at this point of time in life? Would you like to invite Jesus to heal you? Or perhaps many of us feel grateful for the life that God has given us. Perhaps this can be a time for us to once again invite Jesus to empower you so that you can become useful in the ministry of God. Let's just take a moment and pray in your own heart. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Dear Lord, we want to thank you for this beautiful story that comes to us afresh this morning. And as we look at this passage, we are thankful for you being our light, the one who gave us living water, the eternal life that is promised through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to always look up to you because only in you we can find healing. Only in you can we find meaning in life? And only in you can we see that our greatest needs are fulfilled and we can live a restored life for all days to come. We thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe we can uh, have the last song. The music team will. And this is also the time for us to collect the offering and uh, your tithes. Feel free to give generously so that God will bless you even more. And music team will lead us, and after that, the pastor will come uh, to say the closing prayer, pray for the offertory and also the benediction.